Today's episode of The Oil Can is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmy.ca. of the Oil Cam Podcast. Hi there, it's Alan Mitchell along with Daniel Nugent Bowman. Daniel, how are you doing during the COVID crisis? Well, at least we have some nice weather here. Like it's, it, I, we were saying before the show started, it's it's almost like summer. Uh, it kind of, we skipped spring, but I'm sure we'll get it uh, kind of on the on the go around here. But uh, I'm really looking forward to the the show today as we we get to talk some some hockey and maybe some future Oilers. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of our guest today. Scott Wheeler joins us uh, from the Athletic, our NHL uh, prospects reporter with the Athletic. Uh, I, I I just feel like you probably have had your head down for the last six weeks, so so the the self isolation would have happened anyway, Scott Wheeler. Yeah, it's a little bit of that. I mean, April's a busy month. I would have otherwise been at U18 Worlds and at the the Frozen Four, which were both happening in and around Detroit this year, but. Uh, this has just given me more time to, you're, you're absolutely right, hunker down, dive into video, and put the final touches on, on my top 100 ranking. It's funny you guys talked about the weather off the top there. It's uh, We had hail in Toronto today, a lot of hail. So it's been uh, uh, going in the other direction weather-wise here. Yeah, I remember when I moved, uh, I've been around the country. I'm originally from Ontario, uh, Toronto, Mississauga. And I moved back to Toronto from Saskatchewan in 2015. I think my first uh summer slash winter back the worst month was was april so uh you never know what you're going to get anywhere really in this country and that's <laughs> that's half the uh the half the fun of living here but um as 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 with alan i'm a huge fan of of um of scott's work you know a couple pieces uh that you should check out if you haven't or uh, his update piece on on tucker tynan and uh also a very very compelling uh profile on on Zaid wisdom uh draft prospect for the for the uh kingston frontenac so great great work scott yeah i appreciate that thanks we're here to talk, obviously, some some Oilers stuff, and um, you know, obviously, obviously, they have a, a few um, kind of high profile prospects. One uh, that had a pretty good year in the AHL is is um, is Evan Bouchard. And what would you say about kind of his first pro year, and and what uh, you know, is there an opportunity? Do you think for him to to crack the um, the roster for the Oilers in the fall? I thought Evan was good. Um, I, I thought he was good in particular when he was used in a prominent role. Evan's one of those. Unique prospects, particularly among defensemen, there are, we always hear about these sort of boomer bus forward prospects, the kid who's either going to make it in the top six or in the top nine, or he, he won't make it at all because he can't play uh, sort of further down the lineup. But I think that that kind of dichotomy exists for, for defensemen as well. Some defensemen need touches. They need to be involved. They need to be playing in offensive zone situations. They need to be sort of active and, and engaged in the game. And I have always found with Evan, when he's been asked on good teams, whether that was good teams internationally with Team Canada or sort of top uh, junior teams when he was in London, um, when he's been asked to kind of play a little bit more of a reduced role, it, it always works to the detriment to his game. He's one of those kids who 
just I, I don't think it gets into a rhythm in a game unless he's playing a lot. He's definitely can waver and wander and his focus is, has always been a little bit of a question mark for him and he can get caught standing around in the offensive zone and then suddenly there's a backdoor pass behind him and he looks like he's kind of playing lazy at times. But I find when he's, when he's engaged offensively, when he's playing on the top power play unit, when all of those things, when he's kind of gifted a little bit more of a role, he really excels. And I think that happened um, in Bakersfield as, as he took on a more prominent role on that team. And uh, I think the same will happen eventually in Edmonton. It will be interesting to watch next season to see whether he can really grab hold of a spot because he may be one of those guys, I think, who struggles if he starts on the third line and he's asked to work his way up and earn his minutes and he's only playing 10 minutes a night. I think you could see him get exposed in that kind of a role. But I do think if he starts playing 15, 16, 17 minutes right out of the gate, you don't have to sort of throw him to the wolves. But if you give him a regular shift out of the gate and you give him some time on one of the two power play units, I think once his confidence starts to build, you're going to see a, a really impactful player. When I saw him in Bakersfield, he he looked uh, early on, he's the kind of defenseman when, when something goes uh, poorly, he he looks calm. When something goes well, he looks calm. He always looks calm. Uh, but he improved from from what I saw during the year. Uh, his positioning was better. His ability to close gaps. He's always been able to pass. From from what I've heard, and and Daniel has has uh, 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 talked to the the folks in in Bakersfield, John as well. What I've heard and read is that that he did improve on the things that he needed to do, uh, and I think that's what you 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 kind of look for. But I, I also wonder if he's a guy who's just so gifted offensively uh, that, that no matter how hard you try, he's going to be the guy who's the offensive defenseman and, and I don't know, he'll play third or second pair. Uh, I I think he's going to be labeled as that um, out of the box no matter what happens. Because he's he's such a good passer, that's going to be his calling card, right? Yeah, you kind of wonder whether he'll get that sort of career Mike Green or Kevin Shattenkirk syndrome where there's just this belief that those guys need to be sheltered and that they're really good at one thing and they can't sort of excel in other areas and there's certainly elements of truth to that in in Evan's game I think he's never going to be the kind of guy who plays 25 minutes a night and plays tough minutes defensively I just don't think he's he's sort of wired that way um but I do still think he can be a, a sort of dominant defenseman, especially offensively, who can make your power play a heck of a lot better and just move the puck up ice and spend more time on offense than he does on defense because he, he's he's so talented at, at sort of making the smart decision with the puck. Even, even offensively, I wouldn't say that he's got these dynamic qualities per se that really pop at you he, he's always produced in line with the kinds of players who do who do have those qualities he's always produced more quite frankly than some players who look flashier than he does on the ice but he does a great job getting pucks through his wrist shot is heavy from the point so he can score goals uh, and then you, you touched on that passing ability so everything just kind of looks natural and easy to him and uh, that's where that that sort of lazy uh, characteristic can kind of come from at times, I think, as well. Um, but no, he's he'll be fine, I think. But you're right; he's not going to be the he's not going to be a true number one defenseman. He's not going to be that guy who just eats minutes and plays on the penalty kill and um, is the go-to player for a coach defensively. I don't think. 
Now, Scott, I, I, you were on the uh, the Full 60 podcast with Craig Custins fairly recently, and, and feel free to correct uh, my interpretation if, if I'm mis- mischaracterizing what you said in any way. But uh, I know um, uh, just based on, you know, from the draft onward, uh, maybe not the, the biggest uh, Philip Broberg uh, fan or, or, you know, uh, maybe maybe a little high uh, uh, in terms of where the Oilers drafted him. But what, what, what are your thoughts about Broberg and, and what kind of player do you think they have in him right now? And what can uh, he be kind of, you know, in the next you know few years here yeah Broberg's a, kind of different than Bouchard in that Bouchard is is I think has always proven to be more than the sum of his parts whereas I think Broberg has always played a, a little bit beneath his skill set he's certainly talented and gifted and athletic it's way more athletic than a player like Evan is um but I I I, I don't know he's just never really has put it all together for me he can skate in transition as good as as most defenders um his skating is definitely a major strength of his game but i find he makes sloppy choices with the puck um i find his stick handling is still a bit of an issue which in today's game can just not be that just can't be a major concern in your game even as a defenseman obviously it's more important as a forward um and yeah he just there's just a sloppiness to his game that i've never really loved and uh, I certainly felt that he was a, a worthwhile first round pick in last year's draft, but he was always kind of in that twenties range for me. And I felt when uh, the Oilers picked him as high as they did, that it, it was certainly a reach for me, especially with the talent that was available in that draft. And I know that Oilers fans are probably tired of hearing that about that pick. Um, but yeah, he's, he's just a big kid who can really skate. And I think when you see a kid who's six foot three and 200 pounds and he can fly in transition and, there's a lot to like about that on its own, even if the rest of the skills lack. So uh, there, there's some nice qualities there, and he may still well become a, a good NHL defenseman. I just, it, it was the range more than the player, I think, that concerned me. And I just don't see the sort of offensive skills and the puck skills that you need in today's game to be a, a, a really impressive NHL defenseman. Scott, a lot of fans uh, were surprised as well that w- when Broberg was taken. They The thought was they would, they would draft a... Uh, scoring forward they ended up getting uh Raphael Lavoie in the, the second round what were your thoughts on him and 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 his season that has just passed Lavoie is fascinating to me um I, I'm actually going to feature him in in the gifted which is a series that I do every year on on sort of just prospects that fascinate me it's just sort of my pet part my pet project per se um something I enjoy doing more than uh feeling the need to do it and and it's one of those projects that uh, for for him in particular um he worked his way into the conversation as one of those prospects that just really intrigues me this season and and really last season as well he was always a, a very good prospect um but in particular with him the thing that stands out and, and that i'm going to focus on is his ability to create shots there are kids who can just create for themselves some players are really good at creating for others. Cole Perfetti can create for everyone on the ice. He can create for himself, but he can find his line mates, um, and, they, and they see seams. And other players tunnel vision the net, and they just want to create for themselves all the time. And oftentimes I find that's a detriment. I, I think a lot of players that are so net-focused, and uh, I need to get to the puck to the net, and I need to score goals, there's a selfishness that can creep in, and, and it can result in, in sort of a one-dimensional player that doesn't tend to translate well at the NHL level um and he has all of those qualities raf Raphael has all of those qualities but 
he has just found this way to do it differently than everyone else. He's big and strong, and he's got that power that a lot of net-driven players have. But he's also got the puck on his string in, 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 a, in a way that really just prevents anyone from taking it off of him. So you'll see him in the offensive zone. He'll be standing in the slot, and two or three players will be collapsing in on him. And he'll just find a way to hang on to the puck and to either slide through them or to just fight off some checks and create a shot for himself. Uh, and it just creates a really interesting package. I don't think he's going to be a fabulous playmaker at the next level. He's not the greatest skater in the world. But when you have size and you can make small area plays in traffic to get sort of take bad angle shots and, and turn them into slot chances for yourself, that's a, a really intriguing skill in today's game. And he does it as well as any kid his age. So that is is the big thing with me with LeBlanc is just he, he, he makes something out of nothing. And, and you see that in a lot of smaller sort of slick, crafty puck handlers, but you don't often see that in a kid who's six foot three, six foot four, like he is. Now, Scott, the uh, Oilers fans had a chance to kind of, uh, get a little bit of a taste of, of uh, Tyler Benson this year. What's what's his ceiling, do you think? Oh, he's a tough, he's always been a tough one for me. Um, I, I really loved him in junior. I thought he was yeah. more than his production showed in junior. Uh, he was always a top prospect, obviously, through his early years of his career in minor hockey. He was viewed by many in Western Canada to be the, the sort of next big thing for a long time. And then his, he never produced that that sort of 100-point, 110-point season that you'd expect out of that kind of a player in junior. And that, as a result, a lot of people began to sour on him. And he became one of those players that I think a lot of people saw as a bit of a tweener, the kind of kid who would be really good in the AHL but maybe didn't have the sort of tools you look for in a bottom six player or the skill level you look for in a top six player. And I think over time I've just learned to like him enough that he, I, I think he's got a chance to be a real good NHL player. I, I think he's got not going to be a first-line player. He's probably not going to be a fourth-line player. But I still see a kid who is good enough at everything um, that, that results happen when he's on the ice. He's just one of those players who makes things happen and drives results in a positive direction and um, makes everyone around him better. And he doesn't have to be the most talented player or the fastest skater on the ice to do that. So... Uh, I've grown quite fond of him in a bit of a weird way, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing whether he can really stick, because I do believe at this point that he's talented enough to, to step into the NHL and to have an impact, and he may never put up huge points, but I think he's going to be a player that fans and coaches and, and everyone involved in the organization learns to, to sort of enjoy watching. Scott, let's talk a little bit about the the 2020 draft. It's uh, the the OHL. Just every time I turn around, there's a there's another compelling story. Feels like there's at least five or six forwards in that league that are that are brilliant prospects. What's your overall take on on the draft at, at large, and then specifically those OHL kids who look really really good? It's a strong draft. Um, I, I say this all the time, but the, the truly great drafts always have a, a sort of transformational player. They have a Connor McDavid or a Sidney Crosby, and then there's normally a tier of, dra of drafts right below that that might have the same depth as a two 2015 or the same depth as a 2005, but lack that truly sort of star level, superstar level prospect. And I think this draft is in that next tier. It's it's a very, very good draft. Short of having a McDavid and a Crosby, it's basically as good as you could hope a draft could be, particularly at forward. Um, it's a little bit thinner on, on defense than, than you'd love for a sort of high-end draft to be. There's really only one, in my opinion, sort of 
top, top, top D prospect, and then a sort of slew of, of middle-tier D prospects, and you'd normally like in your top 10 if there's two or three high-end D instead of one, uh, like there is for me, but the forwards at the, in this draft are very high-end. I have eight, arguably nine forwards that I, I adore, um, and the, the OHL players certainly factor in there. I mean, they are a year after the US USA Hockey challenged Hockey Canada for for both the number of players in my top 100 and exceeded Hockey Canada for the number of players in my top 10. It, it's gone the other direction a bit. This is a, a, a Canada-centric draft after we, a dominant American draft a year ago. Um, and those OHL kids have basically everything to do with it. I mean, from Byfield to Perfetti to Drysdale to Marco Rossi, who I think is just a fabulous hockey player. Um, those, those four kids in particular have just made this draft a lot of fun to watch. It's made OHL hockey really exciting again. Um, so it's, it's been a fun year for sure. Yeah, a forward heavy draft sounds ideal for the, for the Oilers who, um, who are, you know, obviously they're graduating some of these players, but, but, uh, as we talked about, maybe Bouchard getting into the NHL potentially next year. Um, they, they're, you know, aside from, aside from that, they're stronger, uh, on the blue line than they are up front. So, um, you know, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen with this season, but, you know, and, and how the draft and, or a lottery would, would play out. But right now the Oilers would be kind of in that 20 range. And just wondering if there were a couple players, probably forwards that you would look at, uh, two or three guys that, uh, would maybe be on the Oilers uh, or should should be on the Oilers um, kind of uh, radar. Yeah, for sure. There are a few players uh, on my board who I, who I tend to have every year in that sort of 10 to 15 range that slip. Um, I don't know what it is about that. Normally it's partly because things start to really change in the draft at that point. The, the top 10 players in most drafts are normally pretty agreed upon. And then uh, you'll see uh, huge differences from scout to scout or evaluator to evaluator or team to team in the boards after that range as things kind of crack open a little bit. And I think this draft's no different. I see a few players who are in that kind of 10 to 15 range for me that could slip to that kind of a range for the Oilers that I would 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 definitely be my best players available at that at that point. Um, and when I talk about those players, I'm thinking of a kid like Noel Gunler who played for Luia in, in the Swedish Hockey League this year. He has always torched uh, his peers when he's at whenever he's played against his peers uh, but he's become a little bit of a controversial player in this draft just because uh, early on there were concerns about his skating concerns that I would probably say are a little bit overstated and then uh, as his season progressed and really as the last two seasons for him have progressed he's been cut by Team Sweden Team Sweden teams that he should have absolutely been on he's been cut because of concerns about his defensive player his commitment shift to shift including this year's World Junior team, which struggled for talent up front for Sweden. And they, they cut one of their most talented players because they just felt like they couldn't trust him. Uh, I, I've never really seen that in Gunnar, frankly. And, and in talking to people with his club team, they they would disagree with some of the evaluations that are out about, about him. He drove results. He was a positive possession player. Uh, they gave him a regular shift at even strength as a teenager in what is probably the third best pro league in the world. Um, so he's a player who I just love because I, I tend to swing on on skill set and upside on in my lists, uh, and he's a player who has no shortage of that and could provide real value if he falls. Um, and then a second player who I think uh, is is widely 
uh, a little underrated because of some of the same concerns is, is Jan Mishak, who came over from the Czech Republic to play for the Hamilton Bulldogs about midway through this year after the World Juniors. Um, just a fabulous goal-scoring winger, the kind of player that, they, that frankly, the Oilers need. Um, plays fast, plays north-south, um, and then can just flat-out sort of crack open a game with, with his shot. So... Um, he's a player, him and Gundler in particular, they're both goal scorers before they're, plat- before they're passers, but they both have concerns about their defensive commitment. And I think that's the kind of player that late in the first round, you, you take your chances on every time. So those are two forwards in particular that I think you should be keeping an eye on if you're an Oilers fan. This is maybe an unfair question, but but I'm always looking for the next Alex Dabrinkit in every draft, a guy who, who the numbers suggested were were pretty darn good, uh, and maybe there are some size or speed issues or whatever the case may be. Is there a player uh, in this year's draft that, that you feel like the uh, scouts might be underrating, but the numbers or the, the skill set, and maybe you've mentioned it uh, in the two gentlemen that you just mentioned, but anybody out there that you like a whole lot more than the industry does? I think there are a couple of players that, that sort of come to mind in that way. Maverick Bork is one of them. I played with the Shawinigan Cataracts in the QMJHL for the last two seasons and was a top, very highly touted player. I believe he was a second or third overall pick in the QMJHL draft uh, sort of growing up. And he's played on a Schwinnigan team that hasn't surrounded him with a ton of talent, and yet he has produced in line with some of the players who put up those gaudy numbers that we saw this year, like the Seth Jarvises of the world. Um, so Maverick's a player who comes to mind. He's 5'10", so he's a little bit on the smaller side, but he's just a slick, slick playmaker. And I, he's another player who, um, he's he's kind of been in that 15 range for me all year, but I could see him available into the 20s, um, and I think he'll have major value there. There's a certainly a risk when you take a player who's 5'10", especially when they're not when skating isn't their standout skill, Maverick's not the fastest player in the world, but he plays really fast. And I think that's what sets him apart. And, and I don't think you have to be the fastest player at your top speed in today's NHL. You just have to be able to make quick decisions and play in small area and small areas and play in traffic and all of that. So uh, Maverick's a Bork, uh, Maverick Bork's a, a player I'm, I'm very fond of. Um, but the, the big one for me is probably a kid by the name of Zion Niebeck, who um is about as small as you can get and still play competitive hockey he's 5.6.25 according to the latest measurements by nhl central scouting he was often listed at five foot eight but everybody kind of knew that that was a little generous uh and quite frankly there are zero players in the nhl right now at his size so if he does make it he'll be an anomaly but um he has just produced so above and beyond all of his peers basically his entire life like he has produced in line with Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz who are pegged to go in the top five at at the very least the top 10 of this draft uh, in Sweden growing up and he continued to do it this year once the the sort of playoff schedule kicked in in Super Elite which is the top junior league in Sweden and uh, the competition got stiffer he produced at a two point per game pace um, in their sort of top 10 tier of, of the Super Elite League play there uh, he's just a sensational player with the puck, can do things that very few players any size can do. Um, and for that, he's he's kind of been in my 20s range despite his size all year. There's obviously major risk anytime you pick a player that small. 
but again, he's just the kind of player I feel like you could swing on. And, and he's also one of those players who's going to fall like a Debrinkat did. Like he will not go in the first round. I would be surprised if a team took him in the first round based off of those I've talked to and, and what's out there in the public sphere and NHL central scoutings list and all of those things. He's just, he, he's widely sort of viewed as the kind of player who's going to slip and fall and be in that sort of second, third, fourth round range as teams uh, sort of change the way that they, the way that they approach the draft. Nobody wants to be the team that takes the five, six kid who never plays pro hockey and makes a big mistake in the first round. So Zion's a kid uh, along with Maverick, who I think could both fall and could both become very good NHL players, despite the odds. Uh, last question for me, Scott, and thank you very much for your time. I, I just wanted to circle back uh, to, to prospects that are actually under the uh, Oilers umbrella. And I asked because, this question because uh, I did speak with uh, with Scott House and the Oilers outgoing um, director of uh, player development uh, a few weeks ago. And, and I asked him if there was a prospect who kind of was not getting you know quite the attention and somebody that we should be keeping our eye on. He immediately said Michael Kesselring, a defenseman from uh, or playing at uh, Northeastern University. I'm just curious if you know too much about him and, and what you kind of think about this this really big uh, raw defenseman. Yeah, he's he's a fascinating sort of project. Um, I've never been super high on him, but he's also followed a late blooming sort of trajectory here. I mean, he was drafted out of high school. He didn't go straight into um, the college route. Like he wasn't a true, true sort of 18 year old freshman. So he took a year uh, after high school and played another year in the USHL. And there aren't very many players who go the USHL after their draft year and then spend four years of college and then still make it to the NHL. Like it's just a, it's still as much as we're seeing a lot of kids take that extra year rather than jumping right into college. You still don't see that many kids spend five years after their draft year and turn pro and, and suddenly become top prospects. Um, but with, with Michael, and I still kind of lean towards him not being a sort of high-end prospect, at least in relative to some of the other players that uh, the Oilers have in their pool. But he's six foot four. He's a good skater for his size. And anytime you're six foot four and you're not slow, um, th- there's going to be some intriguing qualities there. He put up, frankly, very good numbers in, in high school and then uh, did the same um, in the USHL. He had a fine year in, in the USHL last year. Um, but he, he, again, I, I worry about sort of his offensive tools. And I know he's he's widely viewed as as kind of late-blooming guy and the skating is there and he's already a, a pretty good defenseman. I wouldn't say he's an excellent defenseman, but he's pretty good defensively uh, for his age and had a fine freshman year at, at Northeastern. But I just worry that he's he's going to end up getting pigeonholed a little at the next level. He's, he's never going to be a power play guy. He's never going to be a, someone who drives offense, even at the college level, I don't think. Uh, so what you're looking at is, is probably a player who's used in sort of a utility role on the third pairing or one of those guys who becomes a, a number seven option for you, which would be fine. I mean, he was a, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but he was a fifth or sixth round pick. So that's a good outcome for that kind of a pick. But um, yeah, I, I, I probably don't share it being as high as Housen is on him, but um, he's a, he's an interesting prospect for sure. Uh, final real quick uh, question because people are going to be asking me about it. So I'm going to ask you, uh, when can we, exp- I know it's a lot of work, but when can we expect your final list? Yeah. So I, uh, f- sort of finished the list a couple of days ago. Um, now I'm just sort of putting together all the content that normally comes with it. And 
typing away here. Um, so, but but it'll be filed in the next few days, and then uh, out in May. So, um, you can expect it probably in the middle of May. I believe Corey's list is running uh, early May, and then my list will follow a couple of weeks later. So, uh, it, it's it's around the corner in the next three weeks, probably. Well, we reserve the right to have you back, and appreciate your time very much. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. Anytime, guys. All right, Scott Wheeler. Wheeler was exceptional. He was uh, he kind of put me in the mood of uh, talking about drafts and things. And uh, you know, y- you wrote a piece this week, and it was uh, you know the anniversary of the lottery win, uh, Daniel. Uh, the, the Connor McDavid piece about maybe looking back at that 2015 draft lottery and the the big takeaway I had, you know, it came through loud and clear from the family. They, they thought Buffalo was kind of going to happen. Yeah. I th- and I think his, his agent, Jeff Jackson did too. There was just so much buzz around Buffalo that year. Um, the Sabres were terrible. And I did, I, there's something, you know, there's something I didn't work into the piece that I remember was the, uh, there was a game between Buffalo and Arizona and they were the two worst teams. And, uh, you know, fans were were actively cheering against, you know, their their team because they wanted a better uh, chance at landing McDavid. Like the Otters, the uh, Erie Otters, McDavid's junior team played a uh, played a game there in in Buffalo. Uh, and then when uh, it didn't happen, uh, Tim Murray was was quite upset on on draft day. I mean, uh, they obviously got a very fine player in Jack Eichel, but um, you know, there's there are number one picks, and, and scouts have told me this. Like there are number one picks, and then there are other you know number one picks and and mcdavid was clearly uh you know the a top superstar like a you know obviously everyone has talked to him being a a, you know a generational player but he's clearly the best number one pick since Sidney crosby and uh to miss out on that was like was devastating for those teams but you know because there had been so much buzz around buffalo a little bit more with Arizona and, and Toronto was 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 fourth. They had you know worse odds than Edmonton, but you know it was like he's from that area and all that. So they were really thinking Buffalo or and maybe to a lesser degree Toronto, and that's why it was such a shock to you know Connor McDavid and, and his family and, and even his agent Jeff Jackson and and clo- others close to him um, when the the Oilers got that pick for you know the what the the fourth time in six years. I mean, it was a shock to them. I was, you know, surely a, a big surprise and, and probably <laughs> upsetting to a lot of other teams because, uh, you know, this, this generational player was, was going to the Oilers, but um, that's that Yeah, you're right. I mean, that was the biggest takeaway for me. And, and I think that you're right. The family, you know, did, you know, convey that pretty, pretty soundly there. It's the Old Can Podcast, by the way. Dean Evison, head coach of the Minnesota Wild, will join Michael Russo this week on Straight from the Source at the Athletic. Uh, I, I I talked last week when we we chatted, Daniel, about your your at that time. I think there were two or three pieces on Colby Cave, and I wanted to uh, uh, just draw attention to the the when Emily Cave spoke out. I I, I know that it had been well covered, obviously, uh, but I like as as a group. This was a very emotional experience for, I think, any hockey fan, certainly for me as somebody who, who sort of, you know, followed Colby K from junior until, until, uh, till now. Um, but exceptional piece. Uh, what a, what a difficult, uh, situation and the, the humanity of, of what Emily Cave said and, and feels is just, it was just overpowering. Um, what a, what an emotional story. Uh, and what a what a you know, I guess unprecedented 
uh, hockey story as well around Emily and, and Colby Cave. Well, just a heartbreaking story. I mean, you know, we've already talked about the situation, but, it's, you know, a 25-year-old player, a healthy professional athlete that all of a sudden, uh, you know, this happens to, and within a few days, he, he you know, he dies. It, it, it was just so startling to everyone, and, and especially, obviously, you know, his family and his friends and, and those that were teammates, those particularly close to him. Um, it was a, a very tough uh, interview with, with Emily, but she was so gracious, so, um, so, you know, uh, I don't know, like she, she, she just, um, just really wanted to get across, you know, her feelings about, um, this, this guy who was so persistent in, 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 in wanting to be with her and, and really won her over a few years ago. And, uh. Uh, you know, they, they had just gotten married last, last summer and they had their, you know, the puppy and they were a big, you know, part of my story was that they had been planning to, uh, adopt a child in Haiti and, um, uh, and obviously, you know, grow a family of their own, uh, with that child. And then, uh, you know, some of their own uh, children as well. And, um, you know, it's just, she's about to turn 27, uh, this coming Sunday and, and, uh, uh, you know, obviously won't have, uh, you know, her husband with, with her and, she was just uh, tremendous during the interview. Um, it was a really tough story to write, but uh, the fact that she handled everything with with such you know grace and 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 really bravery um, uh, made that interview a lot easier than it than it uh, you know could have been. And uh, you know just my condolences to her as I as I told her on the phone. And um, I think the other thing that really came across in the piece was obviously everything going on in the world right now with, you know, COVID-19 and various restrictions and, uh, obviously stuff at the, the hospital that she had to go through. But the fact that now she, she's having to wait to have a proper, you know, uh, funeral for, for, for Colby is just, is, you know, it's just heartbreaking. It's, it's really kind of, uh, postponing, um, her being able to, uh, to move on. And it's, uh, it's just such an awful experience and uh, I hope that, you know, obviously what she went through came across in the piece and I've had a lot of, you know, great feedback. It's, it's obviously not about me, but I think it just speaks to how well uh, Emily uh, has been handling this. And again, my, you know, my sincere condolences to her and her family. It, it really is a unique and, and uh, emotional story and, and kudos to you for, for writing. I think it's four pieces or five pieces now and really kind of giving us an update on a story that, that you, you know, because of COVID and other reasons, it, it, it was um, uh, difficult to follow at times, but you certainly did a very good job uh, over a, a few weeks. Um, now, it's uh, we're, we're a little long, but I, I because I'm so curious ab about your questions, I'm going to ask our friend Jeff to hang in just a little longer um, to see if we can, you know, do another round of your your crazy game show. Yeah, I, I realized I didn't make it hard enough for you last week, and and I, I you know, I, for our listeners, I'd like to end on a bit of a positive note after uh, after our, you know just talking about that that situation with Colby and Emily Cave. But um, so for those that didn't follow along last week, basically I asked uh, last week it was Jonathan and Alan, but this week just obviously Alan, and I'll ask him a, a specific Oiler and then the year that he uh, a year, and he has to tell me whether this player played for the Oilers that year or not. Was he an Oiler? During that season or not so uh we're going to start with mark napier 1986-87 okay 86-87 that was 
it was close because he came over and then I think I think he did play there and then he played in 88 as well he signed and then and then they traded him by 90 he had been traded to Buffalo so I'll say he was well you're right but you're you're a little off in your in your <laughs> in your description there he, he was actually traded to Buffalo mid-season but did spend part of the 80, 86 87 okay. season in Edmonton so you're you're one for one all right so this is my my claim to fame <laughs> player number 2 is my claim to fame as a hockey player which isn't much but I played high school hockey, grade 10, uh, with Ryan O'Mara. Uh, I was one of okay. the, you know, mid to, to bottom players, and he was clearly our best player. This is before he went to go play junior in the uh, the Ontario League. So was Ryan O'Mara, uh, did he play for the Edmonton Oilers in 2011-12? Oh, wow, that is tough. He would have come over in the trade for Ryan Smith, and I... I... And that was, uh, I'm going to say he's, he was gone by then. I'll say no. Oh, you're, you're incorrect. He played ah. seven games for the Oilers that year, 40 with the Barons, and then was traded to Anaheim. So yeah, one for two. Okay. Yanni Niedema, 1996-97. Boy, they traded for him out of Philadelphia. That's and correct, if you'd yeah. asked me, I would have said 97-98 was the year. So I'll say he did not play that year for them. You were bang on. 96-97 was his rookie year with Philadelphia. And yeah, you were yeah. exactly correct. Okay, goaltender, Peter Ng, 1990-91. Oh, <laughs> You're killing me here. <laughs> I was too easy on you last week. <laughs> Ng, now, oh, was it 91 or 92 that trade? Uh... They were still good in 1991. I'll say it was the year later. I'll say no. You're correct. You can. You're, you're really thinking this through. I like it. He uh, was still with the Leafs, and the next year he, he spent right. time with the Oilers and Cape Breton. Uh, okay, so you're, you're, you've already passed, but can you get to uh, 80% here? Nice A. Uh, our last player is Gilbert Brulé. So, okay. did he play for the Oilers in nine in 2011-12? That would have been late, but he had kind of a goofy career with the Oilers. He was up and down. I'll say he did. Well, he didn't. He was with the organization. Ah. He played 27 games for the Barons and then was traded, but he never got into a game with the Oilers that season. Oh, well, that's 60%. So that's, yeah. This, this is a kind of a tricky one because he was in the organization for a time no, that no, year, I but, mean, that's, but he did not play for the Oilers. No, that's the that was that's the name of the game, and actually, you know, it's too, it, it's funny about that because I I I fall I I really liked Brule as a player, uh, and I followed his uh, his career, and he had some 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 issues here and there, and some injuries, and uh, but he was he hung around a long time, and I always thought he would make it uh, because he had I mean. Look, Gilbert Brule's problem was that he wasn't big enough, and he played a big game, and he wasn't, he couldn't do that, and we see that uh, from time to time. But my God, he had talent. He's a talented player. Now I'm just trying to look up quickly here if he was actually on the Canadian Olympic team in Sochi, uh, or sorry, uh, Pyeongchang, uh, because he was in the running, and I did a story about that, and I can't remember if he was actually on the team or not. Uh, yes, he was. He, he had two goals and three assists. So. That's a, a nice hey. little way to uh, kind of get in, a little bit more 
uh, publicity or whatnot. Uh, obviously, it was a very uh, different tournament without the NHL players, but still a career highlight, I would imagine, for him. Well, I, I have to say, even though I only got 60%, I, you, can you bring that again? Because I love it. It's it's a, it's a mind-bender. I love you. <laughs> I love your, your thought process and really trying to, uh, to problem-solve. You did I think you did a pretty darn good job there. Well, there you, I thank you. Uh, by the way, we've introduced a comment section for each podcast episode at The Athletic app, so make sure you say hello and let us know how we're doing. Don't forget to rate and subscribe the oil can on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash the oil can, you get 40% off your subscription. For Daniel Nugent Bowman, I'm Alan Mitchell. Thanks for tuning in today. 